Awesome. This is going to be a heavy, sweat-infested sermon, too, so I'm just going to go ahead and apologize up front. Um, I officiated a wedding last night, and so I'm just going to warn you, if I start getting into, like, covenant language or asking you to repeat after me, just go along with it, because my brain is just mush right now. I'm going to try to hone in in just a second on this morning's passage. If you're new here and you're wondering, where are we going to be in the Bible? Well, we've currently been working our way through the book of Acts as a church, dating back to last August, a series that's going to carry us all the way through the end of May. And then we'll jump into the book of Ecclesiastes this summer, which should be fascinating. Not sure how familiar you are with that book of the Bible. At first glance, it seems very depressing. You know, the book of Ecclesiastes, you have the author saying that everything is meaningless, everything is vanity, everything is a chasing after the wind. I promise you, this summer's not gonna be a huge buzzkill. There's gonna be a lot of sweet stuff that's gonna come out of that series. And then we'll jump into the Sermon on the Mount together when we get into the fall. But For the sake of this morning, we continue in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is basically the story of the early New Testament church. It's the story of the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to the farthest reaches of the known world. It's the story of Jesus fulfilling his promise to build his church with the gates of hell powerless to stop it, which we've seen him doing for 19 chapters now, for those of you who have been around since the very beginning. Luke's gone to great lengths to show us that that nothing can keep the gospel from spreading. There's no threat to the church, no obstacle to growth that God cannot overcome. Up to this point, if you have been around from the beginning, you've seen a lot of grassroots stuff, right? We've, We've been given a very grassroots picture of the church up to this point. We've been told of churches being planted. We've been told of Paul and his friends strengthening recently planted churches. But this morning, we get a unique window into the formalization of the early church, which as a relatively young church can be of great help to us. And so I invite you to open up your Bible to Acts chapter 20. That's where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible or you came in with a translation in your possession that's a little difficult to track with, then please take one of those Bibles as the church's gift to you. Let me pray for us because we got a good bit of ground to cover this morning. We'll jump in and get to work. God, thank you for this chapter of the book of Acts. Incredibly unique in the sense that we've, we've seen your people coming together, gathering in upper rooms, praying together, uh, fellowshipping with one another, eating meals together, studying the scriptures together. But it's in this morning's passage, Acts chapter 20, that we begin to see language that shows us that something is being formalized. And amazingly, as James mentioned just a few moments ago in leading us in worship through song, it's it's a story that we're caught up in, that we're a part of, that we actually continue the very practice of many of the things that we see in this morning's passage today, 2,000 years later. I pray that that's of great encouragement to us. I pray that We see the gifts that you've given us in the assembly of the church, in the leadership of the church, and ultimately in the giving of yourself, Jesus, so that we might be reconciled to our maker. Holy Spirit, would you move in these moments that we have with each other? Would you open our eyes to see the things that you would want us to see? Open our ears to hear the things you want us to hear, our hearts. Would you open them to receive the things that you want us to receive? Holy Spirit, you are, as we've said week in and week out, the same spirit that we see moving mightily in power in the book of Acts, alive and well today. 
You have not changed in your character. You have not changed in your nature. You have not changed in your being. You have not changed in your might. So I pray that we would expect you to move mightily in our lives, in our hearts, in these moments in which we open your word together. It's in the name of Jesus I pray, amen. So last week, if you weren't here last week, we left the Apostle Paul outside the theater of Ephesus. Very famous passage of scripture, a theater filled with roughly 24,000 confused and very angry people, irrationally screaming at the top of their lungs in the wake of Paul having confronted the idols of that city. It's by God's grace that the Apostle Paul is still alive at this point in the book of Acts, which is a theme that we'll see yet again in the opening verses of Acts chapter 20. If you look at verse one, it says this, it says, after the uproar ceased, that, that is the uproar in the theater of Ephesus, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. And when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. There's a lot in these six verses. After the, the riot in the theater of Ephesus, Paul goes on a tour of various cities throughout Macedonia and Greece. If you look up on the screen, there's a map similar to what many of you probably have in the back of your Bibles. In, in these six brief verses, if you look up at that map, you'll see that, that Paul travels all the way from Ephesus, kind of in the, the southwest corner of the red area of Asia, and he goes up throughout the, the northwest section of Asia, the Pacific Northwest of Asia, you might say, and then on up into Macedonia, into some famous cities that we've seen before in the book of Acts, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and then down into uh, Achaia, where the city of Corinth is. He stayed there for about three months. What we're not told in these verses is, is this, that What's packed into these six verses is that the Apostle Paul wrote both 2 Corinthians and the book of Romans. Okay, if you've ever read Romans, that's a meaty book of the Bible, right? Packed into these six verses, the Apostle Paul wrote the entire book of Romans, which is a gift to us, an incredible gift to us, along with 2 Corinthians. There, there's a lot going on here. Paul goes all the way down to Corinth, then he travels his way all the way back up and almost back to Ephesus where he started. He stopped short of that in the city of Troas. All of that's packed in. Luke doesn't give us all that. He leaves a lot off of the table because his goal is not to give us everything, but rather a summary. He does tell us that Paul's not alone in all these travels. Verse four gives us a pretty extensive list of traveling buddies a list representing the very story of the advancement of the gospel in the book of Acts, right? Men from Berea and Thessalonica and Lustra and Derby and Asia, all places uh, where Paul and his friends have spread the gospel uh, throughout the course of, of the last several chapters of the book of Acts. Paul had determined to take up a collection for the church in Jerusalem at every stop along the way in this journey. And so most scholars believe that this list of traveling buddies was not there just for encouragement, but also for protection and maybe even accountability. From a literary standpoint, though, the journey slows down in, in verse 7. 
for a week-long stay in the city of Troas. There's a zooming in, and we'll see that a second time before we finish this morning's passage. And I think in those moments, we're meant to, to take a deeper look. Why would, why would Luke not zoom in and tell us about the Apostle Paul's experience in writing the book of Romans? Why would he not zoom in and tell us the Apostle Paul's experience of writing 2 Corinthians? Why would he not dive into some of those details on this journey until we get to verse seven? What is he trying to tell us in verse seven in this day in the city of Troas? Well, let's read that and I think we'll see. It says, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, that is the Christians in the city of Troas, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. Right, this, is, this is not simply a description of a, a Sunday night dinner party. Luke uses that phrase on the first day of the week in only one other place in his gospel account, chapter 24, where it says this, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went into the tomb taking the spices they had prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. You see what? Luke's doing here in Acts chapter 20, he's connecting the assembly of God's people to the resurrection of their savior. This is the, the first rev, uh, reference to Sunday worship in all the book of Acts, the Lord's day. The early church started worshiping on Sunday, even though devout Jews had worshiped on Saturdays for thousands of years. Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday morning. We'll celebrate Easter Sunday just a couple weeks from now. And as the news spread, people gathered together and celebrated, declaring it to be the Lord's Day. And it was such a joy that they decided to do it again the following Sunday, and we've been doing it ever since. Which is kind of cool to be doing it today, right? 2,000 years later, we're living out this story that we see in Acts chapter 20. John Stott says it this way. He says, word and sacrament meaning the Lord's Supper, were combined in the ministry given to the church at Troas, and the universal church has followed suit ever since. That this morning we gather together to do the very same things that our brothers and sisters gathered for 2,000 years ago. One, to be instructed in the faith through the preaching of God's word, or to use that Acts kind of language, the apostles' teaching, that the church is a community of people brought together in devotion to the teachings of scripture, which is inextricably intertwined with a devotion to the hero of scripture, Jesus Christ, that one evidence of the Spirit's presence in the church is a deep love for and loyalty to the Bible and its hero, Jesus, which is the kind of community we're trying to build here. We're trying to foster that, a community growing in love for and loyalty to the scriptures, a community growing in love for and loyalty to the hero of scriptures, Jesus. But then secondly, gathering to remember and celebrate the redeeming work of Jesus through the partaking of the Lord's Supper. Very famous passage of scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Paul says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I would say it this way. If, if preaching is the word of the gospel made audible, then the Lord's Supper is the word of the gospel made visible. 
If preaching is the gospel declared, then the Lord's Supper is the gospel displayed, which is why we participate in communion as often as we sit under the preaching of God's word. We want the gospel made visible as often as it's made audible. The Lord's Supper is the word of the gospel made visible. It's this badge of profession before the world. It's our visible proclamation that Jesus' death matters. Coming back to this morning's passage You have the church in Troas gathered together for both word and sacrament, the apostles' teaching and the breaking of bread. And make no mistake, it it wasn't easy for those in the first century. It was a work day. Their Sunday gatherings were very similar to our community groups in that regard. Imagine if your community group met until midnight by the light of a flickering fire. How do you think that would go? I think the best of us would probably start to doze at some point along the way, which helps to make sense of verse 9 tells us in a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer and being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. That's a crazy turn, right? The, the word translated sleep in most of our Bibles comes from the Greek word hypnos, which is where we get the word hypnotized. You can just picture this young boy's eyes just getting heavier and heavier and heavier with the continuing words of the Apostle Paul, his head kind of starting to bob along the way. Next thing you know, he's free falling from a third story building. Like, can you imagine that? If that happened in one of our gatherings, it's crazy, right? That tells us two things. One, secret church would not be the first time that a church stayed up till midnight, so you should come to secret church because there's precedent in the Bible for that. But also, you're free to fall asleep at Secret Church because there's precedent for that too. The irony, coming back to this morning's passage, is that this kid's name in the original language actually means lucky. It means fortunate. Here's how lucky this kid is. Not only does he plummet from a third story window to his death, but he'll forever be associated with the first recorded episode of somebody falling asleep in church. Aren't you glad that that was not you? And his name's, it's not like his name is Mark or Bill. Like you're gonna get to the new heaven and earth and meet a guy named Eutychus and you're gonna go, hold up a second. Are you, are you the guy that fell from the third story window and he's gonna go, is this all I get to talk about in the new heaven and earth? This is like the 10,000th time I've been asked that question. That's the sermon application, by the way. Don't fall asleep in church. That's not true, but you would be surprised at how many commentators went in that direction to try to make that argument that Luke, a couple thousand years ago, when he recorded this episode, it was to tell people, don't fall asleep when you gather with God's people. I think there's something more than that. If you go to verse 10, it says, but Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, He conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Is there a less dramatic story of a death and resurrection in all of the Bible? It's so matter of fact, right? One moment you have this kid falling from a third story window, which is crazy. Next moment he's alive again and the church service has resumed. One of the things that ran through my mind was, How significant must the remainder of their time together have been that night? Imagine 
conversing about the death and resurrection of Jesus right after seeing the death and resurrection of that young boy. Imagine taking communion, which represents the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, right after seeing the broken body and shed blood of that young boy. How that must have strengthened that young church in the city of Troas that night. Verse 13 tells us, but going ahead to the ship, we, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met a, us at Assos, we took him and, on board and went to uh, Mytilene. And sailing from there, we, went, uh, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Very similar to, to what we saw in the first six verses. This is kind of round two with the fast forward button press. These, these verses, beginning in verse 13, it's this quick move into the, the journey coming to almost a close as Paul travels down the, the west coast of Asia, essentially, choosing not to stop in the city of Ephesus, likely due to the fact that, if you recall, if you were around uh, a couple of uh, Sundays ago, the Apostle Paul spent a few years in Ephesus. He probably had some very significant, meaningful relationships. The, the goodbyes alone probably would have ruined his plan to try to get back to Jerusalem in time for the celebration of Pentecost. And so he decides to hang out in Miletus, and, and we get this zoom lens yet again. From a literary standpoint, similar to the stop in Troas, the journey slows down here again in Miletus for the remainder of the chapter. This time to zoom in, not on the formalization of the assembly of the church, but on the formalization of the leadership of the church. Look at verse 17, it says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Apparently, the ship that, that Paul's on stops for a bit of a layover, which gives him just enough time to send for the elders of Ephesus a chance to leave them with some parting words. The, the verses that follow here are incredibly unique because they provide us with the only major speech to Christians in all of the book of Acts. Think about that for a second. The only major speech to Christians in all of the book of Acts. Every other speech having an evangelistic bent to it. And it's an incredibly serious moment. One commentator liking this scene to a group of soldiers covered in dirt and blood, huddling with their honorable general for, for some parting wisdom. And this is what Paul says to these men. Verse 18, and when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews and how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I love the way Paul begins this address as he shows the balance of what it is to be a gospel witness. We, we came up with that, that word witnesses for the title of this series because you essentially get the opportunity just like those a couple thousand years ago to witness God on the move, but also there, there's a, another meaning behind the word. We get to be his witnesses, witnesses of Jesus Christ. 
And Paul gives us a glimpse of a beautiful balance here of what that means, what it means to be a gospel witness. He says, I testified to the gospel with both my lips and my life. I both declared and displayed the gospel. The display of the gospel evidenced verse 19 in Paul's humility and tears, along with his courage to face the trials that happened through the plot of the Jews. You have this beautiful intermingling of confidence and humility, of humility and boldness coming together, which is exactly what the gospel produces. It destroys the pride in our hearts on the one hand, declaring to us that we're so bad that Jesus had to die for us. And at the same time, it destroys the crippling effects of despair, declaring to us that we're so loved that Jesus was glad to die for us, producing both a humility and a courage in the life of the recipient of the gospel, which we see most certainly in the life of the Apostle Paul, right? On the one hand, he was committed to serving the Lord with all humility, these verses say, like the son of man who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that willingness to serve the Lord with all humility was coupled with tears for the Apostle Paul, tears of longing, tears of compassion as he came face to face with the brokenness of human hearts and of this world that groans for its redemption. Like Jesus in the feeding of the 5,000 who looked out on that massive crowd with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Or the encounter with Mary in the wake of Lazarus's death. You remember that story where Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and wept? The gospel produced this Christ-like humility and compassion in the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. And yet on the other hand, it, it created a courage. Paul had the courage to face the trials and persecutions brought on by the Jews over and over and over again as we've seen throughout the book of Acts, right? Like Jesus in his unwavering resolve to set his sights on Jerusalem, though he knew that it was there that he would die, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, Hebrews 12 tells us, Paul, and if you've read anything of Paul, you know this, had come to know a Jesus worth both living and dying for. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, Paul would say elsewhere. To live is Christ, to die is gain. As Martin Luther says in the song that we sing from time to time around here, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, Luther says, the body they may kill, his truth abideth still. Paul displayed the gospel in confident humility, humble boldness. It was a both and, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with the courage to face trials. But he didn't just display the gospel. He also declared the gospel. The declaration of the gospel evidenced in verse 20 in Paul's refusal to shrink from declaring anything profitable in his teaching them in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and Greeks, verse 21, of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Paul's heart was full of Jesus, and therefore he told people of the good news of Jesus everywhere he went. It was this both and for the apostle Paul, display and declaration, word and deed, lips and life. An incredibly helpful model, not just for the Ephesian elders to imitate, for all of us who declare Jesus to be our savior and king. Verse 22 goes on to tell us that Paul says, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. 
But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, verse 25, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Now you get Paul shifting from past tense to future tense language, and yet he doesn't shift the focus of his message, does he? It's more of the same confident humility, humble boldness and looking to the days to come. Humility in that verse 24, he doesn't account his life of any value nor as precious to himself. It's all about Jesus's value for Paul. It's all about Jesus's glory, but also the courage to face the awaiting persecution. He says, if only I may finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, that Paul is resolved to go to Jerusalem, resolved to finish the ministry he received from Jesus, constrained by the Spirit to march toward his own seeming demise, his face set like flint, just like Jesus' face was set like flint toward Jerusalem, resolved to finish the ministry that he had received from the Father. See, a lot of parallels between Jesus and the Apostle Paul in these remaining chapters of the book of Acts. Paul essentially is willing to suffer for Christ as Christ was willing to suffer for Paul, you might say. That Jesus is the supremely valuable treasure of the Apostle Paul and therefore he can march toward his own death, crazy as that may seem, knowing that death can only bring him face to face with his greatest treasure. I would argue that's a different picture, a very different picture of Jesus than many are painting, particularly in the American South landscape. And so I would present the question this morning, is Jesus your supremely valuable treasure? I mean, let's not pretend that dying would be easy, facing death by no means. But I do think it's worth asking the question, if we were to face death, is there, is there any element of our thinking that would, that would consider the fact that we're about to meet the most supremely valuable treasure in all of the universe and that that might make our hearts glad? Do you know this Jesus? If not, you can know him today. If you are a Christian, I thought about this this week, there's no telling, there's no telling what we could face in life if only we would more deeply consider the supreme worth of Jesus Christ, the greatest treasure in all the universe. Paul goes on to say in verse 26, Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul declares that he's not responsible for the doctrinal or moral integrity of the Ephesian church moving forward. He was so thorough in his ministry over the course of those few years, having proclaimed the whole counsel of God to them, as well as having raised up elders to carry the torch. I was thinking about this just a few days ago in kind of thinking forward with respect to our church and really thinking not just a few years out but 30, 40, 50 years out and thinking to myself, I would love someday to have preached through the entire Bible with this church, to die with the kind of a conviction to be able to say, like Paul, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And so that, that sparked my curiosity, sent me back looking at the preaching calendar over the last few years. Since moving to Peachtree City, this will be the seventh book of the Bible that we will have worked through from start to finish. And some of you were around before I was, the first couple years of this plant, before me and my family moved up. And so you got a few books on, on, on us in that regard. 
Ecclesiastes, for me, for our family, will be the eighth book that we will complete by the end of this summer. I hope that encourages you to think about the fact that we're well on our way. We're working on eight out of 66. That's pretty good, right? That's a good start. Paul then goes on to focus on the present tense. He says this in verse 28 to the elders of Ephesus. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. If, if the episode in Troas gives us a window into the formalization of the assembly of the church, then this episode in Miletus gives us a window into the formalization of the leadership of the church. Certainly not a full picture it's a little frustrating as a preaching pastor to think about a passage like this because I can't give you the fullness of, of everything that the Bible speaks on church leadership with respect to. That would require that we go to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 where we find the foundational text for both the offices of elder and deacon along with the character qualifications, the competency qualifications, even the gender qualifications for those two offices. It would require a study of 1 Peter 5, which provides us with the biblical motivation for aspiring to those offices. But even without diving into all those passages, Paul does give us some key information here as it pertains to, to church leadership. I'll give you a few things. For one, Paul makes clear that an elder and a pastor are not two different things. I don't know what you bring into this room this morning in terms of your understanding of the offices of the church pertaining to leadership, in the 21st century American evangelical church, there's been this shift toward a business model of leadership, more so than a biblical one, I would argue, a model in which the roles of pastor and elder have been separated from one another. Pastors being the paid clergy who do the work of ministry, elders functioning as some sort of accountability board, setting the budget, voting on business matters, making sure that the pastors are doing their job to which I would say that is incredibly unbiblical, just so you know, incredibly unbiblical. The scriptures make clear that a pastor is an elder and an elder is a pastor. They're one and the same. In fact, in the scriptures, the terms pastor, elder, and overseer are used interchangeably to refer to the same person or group of leaders. See it in a couple places, including this morning's passage. Look again at, at Acts chapter 20, verses 17 and 18, and then jumping to verse 28. It says, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders, the presbyteros. That's where the Presbyterian church gets their language in terms of their church government. He sent for the elders, the presbyteros of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, to the elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's the Greek word episkopos. It's where the Episcopal church gets its governance language. Elders, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Cares from the Greek word poimen. It's where we get the word pastor or shepherd in the Bible. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. You see it elsewhere in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, where Peter says, So I exhort the elders, the presbyteros among you, 
as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. He says, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd, poimain, that's where we get the word pastor, the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, episkopos, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Terms elder, pastor, and overseer used interchangeably in the scriptures so that to be an elder is to be a pastor, is to be an overseer. The various titles simply help to explain the natures of the various responsibilities of the one and same office. So we'll get into that in just a second. Bob Thune and his resource entitled Gospel Eldership, which uh, our church uh, and many Acts 29 churches utilize, uh, it says this, and uh, I'm realizing something happened between putting these slides together and making their way onto the screen so that you don't have the full quote there, but we're close. So let me just read it to you. It says, in a properly functioning biblical church, there will be a plurality of men who serve the church as pastor elders. I know there's something baked in there. If you're going, I don't know about men only in terms of eldership, let's table that. We'll have an opportunity for you to send in questions at the end of this service and we'll engage in some of that stuff. But again, that would require far more than the scope of Acts chapter 20 to get to. But continuing on, therefore, these men lead the church spiritually. Some of them may serve in a full-time vocational capacity, receiving their financial income from the church. And he cites 1 Timothy 5 there, 1 Corinthians 9. He says, others may serve as tent makers, like Paul, receiving their income from another job. One of them may have significant gifting in the areas of preaching, teaching, and leadership, and may have a first among equals role because of this, while others may serve in less visible ways according to their gifting and calling. But whatever the nuances of its specific application, the biblical model of church leadership demands that qualified pastor elders, you see him using that language, pastor elders serve together as the spiritual leaders of the church, shepherding the flock and sharing responsibility authority and accountability as a team. So I think the fair question would be, what does that look like for us as we formalize ourselves as a church? Some of you, you know the answer to that question, particularly if you're a partner, you've sat in on partner meetings, we've talked about a little bit of this stuff, but if not, maybe to, to help kind of inform you and bring you along for the ride. As it stands right now, we're currently in, in what we refer to in our bylaws as an incubation phase, meaning that we do not currently have a plurality of pastor elders on the ground here. You might ask, well, we have a staff of three. What about Jason? What about James? What, what do we do with that? To which I would say both of those guys, I've been in conversations with them. They're interested in exploring eldership. We've had some of those dialogues. They're actually functioning uh, in some of the responsibilities already that an elder would function in, which I think is a good thing. We've actually, with respect to our partners, our members, we, we've shifted in the hopes that people would actually function as partners before they become partners. That's a lot healthier than people going, let me sign up for that and then I'll start acting like that. That's a little strange, right? But you do see that, people kind of just checking the box of church membership and so until they check that box and actually work through the process, they don't function as members of the church. And so we wanna shift that. And so there's something good about functioning as a member before you are affirmed as a member. Same thing with respect to eldership, functioning as an elder before you are affirmed and appointed as an elder. But as far as where we are now, one of the things that we're committed to um, is guarding against conflicts of interest, particularly those associated with the pastor elder team made up of only a bunch of guys who get compensated by the church. 
You can kind of see where there might be a conflict of interest there, right? Which is why it's so critical for us in the development of our church to have non-staffed men brought on as pastor elders so that we can then bring on staff members in a way that's above reproach. That's the goal. Our goal being a simple majority of non-staff pastor elders. I'm gonna keep using that hyphened phrase for the remainder of this sermon. In the meantime, for those of you who don't know, we're currently part of a sending church model, which means that we have two men meeting the biblical qualifications of an elder who are currently pastor elders of our sending church and are acting as interim pastor elders as we work to establish a plurality here on the ground of local elders. That is not uncommon in the church planting realm. Tons of church plants go about it that way. It protects the church from the planting pastor elder leading the church in isolation on the one hand. That's one benefit. Secondly, it protects the church from expediting the process of leadership development to the detriment of a healthy long-term plan and team. You don't wanna appoint elders too quickly and then have to undo all of that mess if you didn't do it rightly. And so the goal for us is we appoint non-staff pastor elders here on the ground, our interim pastor elders from our sending church will begin to roll off of that team, exit that team, leaving us with a local team made up of a majority of non-staff pastor elders. You can think of it this way in biblical language. Titus 1 tells us that Paul left Titus on the island of Crete to appoint elders. You could say it this way. We currently have a couple of Pauls and a Titus, me being the Titus, the one on the ground. And we have two men who have appointed me, Titus, the task of appointing elders here locally for us. Those, those men, of course, will play a part in that process, assessing any sort of pastor elder candidates that come into the pipeline. And so I would say this. Men, if you're wondering whether or not eldership is something to aspire to, send you to a couple of places. I would say go and read the What We Believe link on our website. See if perhaps the elder level theological alignment is there. Go and read passages like 1 Timothy 3, and Titus 1, 1 Peter 5 to get a better grasp of those biblical qualifications and motivations for eldership. If you engage in those activities and you go, I think the Lord might be stirring something in me, let's talk. And I would say that if you engage in those activities and it seems that a door is closed in the wake of doing so, please don't buy into the lie that God cannot use you mightily in this church. I went to an Acts 29 Georgia uh, statewide conference that we do once a year and we looked at Romans chapter 16 and one of the most incredible things, never saw this before because I'd never taken this angle in studying Romans 16, but the keynote speaker that we had um, made mention of and, and was quick to point out all of the unsung heroes in Romans 16 that you read from the start of that chapter to the very end without which the church would have not flourished remotely the way that, that she flourished in her earliest days of existence. This is a priesthood of all believers. There are far more, far more unsung heroes than pastor elders in the history of the church. You might say, I don't even know what it is that a pastor elder does. Like, whether it's like experience that you bring in, you go, I think I've seen it done wrong. Like, I think I've seen that distinction thing that you're telling me is now unbiblical, so I gotta go like rewrite some things. You just sent a wrecking ball deconstructing my paradigm and understanding of church leadership. What are the responsibilities of a pastor elder? What should pastor elders be about and be doing? I'll, I'll give you 
I'll give you a list in scripture of some things to kind of get your mind around this, this idea of church leadership as a gift from God. Pastor elders pray and study the scriptures, Acts chapter six, verse four. Pastor elders rule and lead the church, bringing governance and oversight, 1 Timothy 5, 17. Pastor elders manage the church, God's flock, as they manage their own household well, 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5. Pastor elders care for people in the church, 1 Peter 5, 2 through 5. Pastor elders, this is a heavy one. Give account to God for the church, Hebrews 13, 17. Pastor elders live exemplary lives, Hebrews 13, 7. Pastor elders rightly use the authority God has given them, not in a domineering way, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Pastor elders teach the Bible correctly, Ephesians 4, 11, 1 Timothy 3, 2. Pastor elders preach, 1 Timothy 5, 17. Pastor elders pray for the sick, James chapter five. Pastor elders teach sound doctrine and refute false teachings, Titus chapter one, verse nine. Pastor elders work hard, they're not lazy, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12. Pastor elders rightly use money and power, 1 Peter 5, one through three. Pastor elders protect the church from false teachers, Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 31. That's this morning's passage. And lastly, pastor elders discipline unrepentant Christians. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. And all of that is meant to be of benefit and good to the body. And we're meant to see that list and go, thank you, God, for instituting church leadership. That long list, if you go, that's a little overwhelming. I'm not sure I can like remember all that. That long list can actually be broken down into four categories using the kind of sheep shepherd imagery that you see throughout scripture. And we see all four of these in Acts chapter 20. Number one, there's a feeding the flock, teaching sound Christian doctrine. You see that in verses 20 and 21 of this morning's passage where we're told that Paul didn't shrink from declaring anything that was profitable, not shrinking from declaring the whole counsel of God. There's also a protecting the flock from wolves, guarding the church from false teaching, Verses 29 through 31, he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. There's something prophetic about what Paul said there because if you go on to read the book of Ephesians, this stuff was happening later on in the life of the Ephesian church. Wolves, people speaking twisted things from among the, the, the flock. Thirdly, caring for the flock, shepherding, pastoring, counseling, praying for, even disciplining. See that in verse 28, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. That you can say it this way, Jesus gave his life for the church. The church needs qualified men who will give their lives for her as Christ has. And then fourthly, leading the flock, providing oversight and direction, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. This has to do with the, the governance of the church, managing the household of God, looking to the congregation for wisdom, insight, and prayer, and then making decisions for the glory of God and the good of the church. You might say, okay, this passage tells us a lot about pastoral ministry, but like, what's the takeaway for me, assuming that God's not calling me to to be a pastor elder. 
To which I would say this, there's nothing except the governance piece that the church is not to do as pastor elders do. That as the pastor elders feed the flock, the saints are called to teach and admonish one another, Paul says elsewhere. That as the pastor elders are to be on alert for false teaching, so all the saints should also be on the lookout for wolves. The pastor elders only have so many sets of eyes. As the pastor elders care for the flock, so all the saints should pray for and care for one another. That the church is a family. It's a body of believers. Pastor elders, you could say, are conduits to the body in many of these things. And even the overseer piece isn't without the voice of the covenant membership of the church. But I would argue that a wise pastor elder team will look to the congregation for wisdom, insight, and prayer, though the elders end up making the final decisions as those who will have to give account to God for the church, going back to Hebrews chapter 13. But here's where it all starts, and this applies to every one of us. If you go back to verse 28, notice the very first thing that Paul says when he gets into that present tense language before he gets into any of the responsibilities or expectations on these men. Verse 28, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves. Most important thing that a pastor elder can do is abide in Christ, which is the most important thing that any person in this room can do. It's abiding in Christ that leads to any sort of fruitful ministry, no matter what your part to play is, right? That goes for all of us. Abide in me, abide in the vine, Jesus says, and and you will bear much fruit. If there's no abiding, then the the vine will will be dead as as it produces this, this sort of, withered stuff like that. The the fruitfulness, the fruit of the spirit comes from that abiding. And so I would ask the question, and this is for everyone in this room. Are you abiding in Christ? Are you keeping a close watch on yourself? To use the language of 1 Timothy chapter four, verse 16. Amazingly, even that's a work of God's grace, which is why Paul goes on to say in verse 32, as we start to work our way to a close here this morning, says, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul closes by commending the elders of Ephesus to the Lord, this kind of benediction in verse 32, similar to how we close out our service each and every week, emphasizing that that their ministry must be built on the word because it's the word that reveals the grace of God And it's the grace of God that's able to build up the saints and bring them to the finish line where their inheritance awaits. He also encourages them to devote themselves to giving their lives for the sake of others as Jesus gave his life for for us. Which is why it's not only an indictment on prosperity gospel preachers who use the impressionability of their impoverished congregants to shake their pockets empty for selfish gain, but it's also a sober warning to anyone who would seek a leadership position in the church as a power grab, or perhaps out of a desire to improve reputation, or to feed an approval idol, or to seek some sort of fame, as if it's impressive to stand in front of a room of 100 people. 
No one will ever remember who I am. The leadership of the church should be pace setters in sacrificial generosity, motivated by the grace of God in Jesus Christ who gave everything so that you and I, impoverished in spirit, might become rich in him. Here's how you know the apostle Paul is a man of Christ, which comes back to the abiding piece. He refuses to get the last word in. You notice that? His last words to the Ephesian elders, the one time you see Paul talk to Christians in a major speech, or anyone talk to Christians in a major speech for that matter, in the book of Acts, the last words aren't even Paul's words. They're Jesus's words. A quoting of the Savior. Verse 36 goes on to say, and when he had said these things, he knelt down, prayed with them all. Very moving moment in the book of Acts. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. That is, Paul had called these men to give their lives for the sake of others and ultimately for the sake of Christ. So now he would go on setting his sights on Jerusalem where he would continue to give his life for the sake of others and ultimately for the sake of Christ. It's an incredible moment in the story of Acts. In this brief chapter, which is laden with gifts, I hope you see that. You see both the formalizing of the assembly of the church and a formalizing of the leadership of the church. Our church hasn't been around for that long. For those of you who aren't aware, we're, we're about six years old at this point meaning that we've still got some formalizing to do. Our assembly, very much in line with what we see in the, the Zoom lens on Troas, going back to verses seven through 12, which should encourage us all greatly. By God's grace, this church will one day soon have a team of pastor elders willing to give their lives for the flock that Jesus has already given his life for. And so my question, one of my questions is, will you commit to praying for the Spirit's power and wisdom that the Spirit's power and wisdom will be evident in the months and years to come as, as we continue to formalize, not just in these two ways, but in many other ways moving forward for the sake of the glory of Jesus Christ. You see the gift of the assembly. When you zoom in on Troas and you see the, the receiving of the apostles' teaching and the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, and you, and you sit in a space like this, we get ready to receive communion, which we're gonna do just minutes from now. What would it be like without the pulpit ministry of the church? What would your life be like without the pulpit ministry of the church? What would your life be like without the experience of communion, whether it be week in and week out or not? Just the absence of communion altogether, the absence of the visible display of the gospel in your life. Have you experienced that means of God's grace, Christ present by his spirit in the receiving of the elements? Has God stirred your heart and moved you through the preaching of his word? We have an opportunity this morning to sit and realize God gave us a gift when he gave us the assembly of the church. And he also gave us a gift when he gave us the, the formalizing of the biblically instituted leadership and governance model of the church to protect us from wolves to provide care and oversight and direction by his grace. He's the chief shepherd. Anyone else is an under-shepherd that sits under King Jesus, the chief shepherd over his church. He's the, he's the ultimate one atop the org chart, just so we're clear. And yet he's instituted under-shepherds, pastor-elders for the good of the church, 
imperfect men that just seek to point people to the perfect Jesus. And ultimately, I hope you see the gift of God himself purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. In a moment, we're gonna receive communion. So we get to kind of step into Troas for a moment. And I encourage you to just stop and, and even pause and, and think about the bizarre episode of a young boy falling from a window, his broken body and shed blood. And, and that simple foreshadowing pointing to the gospel may sound silly to say, but Jesus is the greater Eutychus. He's the one who died for our sins and rose from the grave so that our great enemies of Satan, sin, and death might be defeated. If you're a Christian, uh, communion is for you. We take the bread, representing the broken body of Jesus, dip it in the cup, representing the shed blood of Jesus. The communion tables to my left and right and one in the back by the coffee table will be open for the remainder of the service. You can come when you're ready. We've, we've opened up that space throughout the remainder of the back half of the service so as to kind of eliminate the herd mentality so that you can listen to the spirit and engage appropriately in your own timing. There will also be people to pray for you, with you in the back of the auditorium if you want prayer. And then lastly, we, we get to sing to this Jesus who bought us with his own blood and who deeply loves his church far more than any of us could possibly 